Twenty years ago, the evangelical world was rocked by the release of a book entitled The Gospel According to Jesus. In that book, Pastor John MacArthur called the church at large back to a biblical understanding of conversion in which the dangerous and potentially damning notion that we can have Christ as a Savior and take an option on whether He is our Lord had become the dominant teaching of evangelicalism. That message shocked people, the idea that Christ was Lord or He was not Savior at all. It shouldn't have, but it did. The reason it shouldn't have shocked anybody is because it is clearly the message of the New Testament. Jesus himself said, Matthew 16, verse 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Furthermore, when the apostles were sent out by Jesus to evangelize the world, the message that they brought was a message that either directly or indirectly spoke about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It was not some tangential notion, some secondary work of grace. It is the very essence of conversion. Acts chapter 2, verse 36 at Pentecost, Peter said, Therefore, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. When the gospel began to go to the Gentiles, Peter again speaking to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 36. It says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, Peter says. The Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you shall be saved. The Lordship of Jesus Christ is intimately woven into what it means to be converted as a child of God. The life and death consequences of the Lordship of Jesus Christ are no more clearly stated anywhere in the Bible than before us in Romans 6. So as we finish this chapter this morning, I want you to open there to Romans chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible this morning, page 1130. Romans 6, verses 15 through 23. Romans 6, 15 through 23. In this section, we noted last time as we began to look at it, 
that Paul includes five behavior-changing statements that we must understand and apply to our own lives so that they might reflect the reality of our new ownership. Our new ownership. Last time we looked at verse 15, the first statement was that we are never free to sin. Never free to sin. The second statement that Paul gave us last week, verse 16, is that voluntary obedience produces slavery. Voluntary obedience produces slavery. This morning, we're going to look at the final three. Let me read the text for you. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed for the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The third statement that I want to look at with you this morning is drawn out of verses 17 and 18, and it is simply this. We have changed masters. Those of us who have become united by faith to the Lord Jesus Christ have changed masters. Paul has established for us in the prior verse, verse 16, the principle that surrender leads to slavery. That which you surrender yourself to is that which you then are enslaved by. And Paul is reminding his readers here that they have exchanged the slaveries, that they are no longer slaves of sin. And in fact, they are now slaves of righteousness. This change is so glorious, so complete that as he reflects on it, he breaks out spontaneously in a prayer of praise and thanksgiving. Look, verse 17, but thanks be to God, he begins. He offers a prayer of thanksgiving to the God who has saved them. The process of offering this short prayer, verses 17 and 18, he reveals the significance of what conversion really entails for us. So let's just kind of unpack this a little bit. What does it mean that we have changed masters? Well, first, beginning of verse 17, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, it's really that simple. They used to be slaves of sin. They used to be slaves of sin. That's what it means to be converted. 
It means you used to be a slave of sin. The unbeliever is in bondage to his own sinful passions. He is corrupt in thought, word, and deed, defiled in mind and at the very core of his being. He can do nothing to please his Creator. In fact, Romans 8, verses 7 and 8, Paul says, The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not even subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That was the message earlier in this book. We began in Romans 1, verse 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where Paul labored away to indict all of humanity and to show them all that they fell woefully short of the righteousness of God and were desperately in need of a slaver, of a savior. Prior to conversion, Paul says, you were slaves of sin, verse 17. You were in bondage. Secondly, notice he says, but you have become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. They have wholeheartedly obeyed apostolic doctrine. They have wholeheartedly obeyed apostolic doctrine. That's the next sign or significance of their conversion. Wholeheartedly, they have given themselves to this. Wholeheartedly, it, it speaks of a willing internal and external obedience. Not something that is held back. Not that we give God a little, but that we give God everything. Christian conversion, beloved, is never, co never coercive. God never coerces people into His kingdom. It is always voluntary. People come to Jesus Christ because they want to come to Jesus Christ because the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, has torn the blinders from their eyes. He has done heart surgery to remove their heart of stone and grant them a heart of flesh. They have been washed in the water of His Word and they have been revealed to them the beauties of the Gospel and the glories of Christ. And they come willingly, cheerfully, with great desire to their Savior. They eagerly flee to the cross of Jesus Christ. Notice further though, as Paul talks about conversion here, he he speaks of it in a really interesting way. I want you to see that here, verse 17. He says you become obedient from the heart to that form of teaching. He doesn't say you become obedient from the heart to God the Father. He doesn't say you become obedient to Christ. He says you become obedient to a certain pattern, a tupos actually in the Greek. It means a, a form or a, or a pattern of teaching. A form or a pattern of teaching that includes both theology and personal ethics. It is an all-encompassing understanding of reality. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, don't turn there, but Paul there speaks in capsule form about the theology that they've come to, that Jesus Christ was crucified and buried and raised on the third day. Over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 and following, Paul speaks there of an ethic that is to mark the Christian life. When he says you have become obedient wholeheartedly to the tupas, to the form, to the pattern of teaching to which you were committed, he says you have given your life over to a certain body of doctrine and a certain way of living. And this is what conversion represents. This same pattern, by the way, is later commended by Paul to Timothy. 
while Timothy was in Ephesus and pastoring the church there at Ephesus. Second Timothy one, verse 13, Paul says to him, retain the standard of sound words, which you heard from me. There is a standard. There is a pattern. There is a, a body of truth that the Christian willingly gives themselves to. Notice also, verse 17, that you've given yourself willingly, wholeheartedly to that form of teaching to which you were committed. It's fascinating. They were committed to the doctrine. They were brought into this body of knowledge. It is the doctrine that made them. It is not them who made the doctrine. That's the difference. They were committed to it. They have been entrusted to it. It is this body of doctrine that converts. Conversion always begins intellectually. It comes through the mind and there it affects the heart. It never goes directly to the heart. It always comes through the mind. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, the Apostle John speaks of this same basic phenomena. He says there to his readers, 1 John verse Chapter 1, verse 3, what we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. John says, when you join us, we are already joined to God. And so you become joined to us and thus you become joined to God. There is this apostolic deposit of doctrine to which the Christian is then joined and by virtue of that is joined to Jesus Christ. To become a follower of Christ means to humbly and willingly submit and believe the apostolic doctrine in which the Lordship of Jesus Christ is a cornerstone. This is not something that can be done away with, not something dispensable, not something that's for later things, more mature things, later days. It is essential to conversion at the beginning to understand the lordship of Jesus Christ and to allow that lordship to take every thought captive. Second Corinthians, chapter 10, verse five, all that we think all the way we understand reality, all of our ethics, all of our theology is to be brought captive in obedience to the Word of God. Now, the external seal of one's wholehearted obedience is the pledge of allegiance we take at our water baptism. That's how it fits together. At our water baptism, we make a pledge of allegiance to Christ our Lord. 1 Peter 3.21, in fact, the NIV translates this very well, better than most. It says there that baptism is the pledge of a good conscience towards God. That's exactly what it is. When you go into the water and come out again, you are pledging that you have aligned yourself with Christ. He is your Lord. And it's at that moment that we publicly declare to the world that an ownership transfer has occurred. That we are no longer slaves of sin. We are now slaves of God. 
There has been an ownership transfer. We are under new ownership. And it is water baptism in which we make that public profession of what has happened in our heart. By the way, this whole understanding of a public declaration of new ownership and in entrusting ourselves wholeheartedly, humbly and with submission to a body of apostolic doctrine that has come down to us from Christ is what lies underneath the principles of church discipline. Church discipline. Church discipline happens to disobedient slaves. It is those who have said they are the slaves of Christ, and yet they are not living as if they are. That they are living as wicked and disobedient slaves. And so Christ has given us a process and a means by which to draw them back to repentance. That they might repent of their refusal to humble their knee before Him and return and begin to live in reality the doctrine of who they are. Or to show themselves as false slaves. In which case they are put out of the church. This is all wrapped together in an understanding of what it means to be under new ownership. Conversion. We used to be slaves of sin. Conversion. We have wholeheartedly obeyed apostolic doctrine. Third, conversion. We have changed masters. Verse 18. Having been freed from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Now, again, let me just stress that becoming a slave of righteousness is not the same thing as becoming perfect. We're not saying that we become perfect, no longer able to sin, no longer capable of sin, no longer participating in sin. Indeed, that would betray Paul's statements in verses 12 and 13, where he exhorts us there to stop sinning. But we have changed masters if we have truly come to Christ. We have been decisively rescued from the lordship of sin and brought into the lordship of Jesus Christ. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. This is an amazing reality, Paul says, that must then play out in our lives. We have changed masters. Fourth statement we must understand and apply is verse 19. Verse 19. We know how to serve. We know how to serve. This is where it gets intensely practical. We have been talking about theology because the Christian life is built on a foundation of theology. The indicative understands or underpins the imperative. We have now arrived at another imperative, another command, another exhortation, another, way, or another uh, statement to us of something we must do. And here it is, verse 19. I'm speaking in human terms, Paul says, because of the weakness of your flesh. Basically he's saying, I'm going to use an analogy. I've been using an analogy here. I'm using an analogy because it's easier for you to understand. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Prior to conversion, our lives were characterized by a voluntary service to sin. A voluntary service to sin, a, a service to what Paul calls here as impurity and lawlessness, verse 19. 
an impurity and a lawlessness that drove us deeper and deeper and deeper into lawlessness. This, by the way, is a moral principle of the universe. That is that no one stands still. You are either moving closer to Jesus Christ or you are moving further away. You do not remain stagnant in your relationship to him. You are moving towards him or you are moving away from him. And if you are moving away from him, Paul says you move deeper and deeper into lawlessness. Impurity. The idea is immorality, basically speaks in a very general sense of sexual immorality. Could also be translated filth or rottenness, impurity, immorality, filth, rottenness, lawlessness. The idea of open rebellion against divine authority, open rebellion against divine authority. The word speaks of a deliberate and open violation of God's commandments. Verse 19 is an analogy. Paul's using an analogy here, and he's really constructed it to answer a question. Maybe it's a question, by the way, that you have had in your mind in the last few weeks as we've been working our way through chapter 6. How do I present my members as slaves of righteousness? That's the question that verse 19 is, is uh, written to address. How do I go about doing this? Okay, I'm convinced. I understand. I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. The bondage of slavery has been broken in my life. I am free now not to sin. I know that I'm no longer to go on presenting my members as, sin, or, uh, as slaves to sin. I am now to present myself, my members as slaves to righteousness. Okay, how do I do it? How do I do it? I want to, but I don't know how. And Paul says, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, you know exactly how to do it. All your life, you have been presenting your members as slaves. It is now time to present them as slaves to righteousness rather than slaves to sin. Paul says it's a transfer of energy, a transfer of effort. Whereas you formerly exerted yourself in the pursuit of sin, now you are to exert the same amount of effort in the pursuit of righteousness. How do you go on presenting yourselves, your members, as slaves of righteousness? Just like you used to chase after sin. Chase after righteousness, just like you used to chase after sin. Think about this. Think about how you willingly used to serve sin. Just think with me on this. A couple of examples. Before conversion... While you were still enslaved in your sin, when you looked at another person, you saw them as a sexual object designed for your self-gratification. A sexual object designed for your self-gratification. Somebody to be exploited. Now, you're to see them as someone made in the image of God. Made in the image of God. Or if they are a believer within the context of the church, you to see them as a brother or sister in Christ. See, formerly you saw them that way and that's how you pursued them. Now you are to see them a new way and to pursue them in a new way. Because they are no longer a sexual object designed for your self-gratification, but they are a human being made in the image of God. They are a brother or a sister in Jesus Christ. And the very idea of being sexually aroused by your brother or your sister is abhorrent to you. 
This, by the way, speaks directly to the issue of modesty. Directly to the issue of modesty among Christian believers. Immodest dress, ladies and gentlemen, to a lesser degree, but ladies, immodest dress arouses and reinforces filthy thinking in your brothers in Christ. It leads them back into the slavery from which they have been delivered. Do you really want them looking at you as an object of sexual gratification? Is that what you really want? I think not. So please, look in the mirror before you step out of the house. Think about who you are dressing for and what it is you're seeking to accomplish by how you dress. In the past, we served sin by welcoming and passing on dirty jokes and stories. It was just a regular part of our daily interaction. When we heard a new one, we couldn't wait to pass it on. You can't, boy, I heard, you can't wait till I tell you this one that I heard. We converted and perverted even innocent statements into things that were debased and defiling innuendos. Apostle Paul says in Titus chapter 1, verse 15, to the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Instead of trafficking in filthy stories and dirty jokes, we are now to regularly and publicly and openly speak about Christ and His glories. See, we do know how to be a slave of righteousness and present our members thereof. All we have to do is think about what we used to do and now do the opposite. In the past, our defiance of God manifested itself in rebellion against His ordained authorities. We instinctively bristled when anyone gave us a command, you can't tell me what to do. And that begins, by the way, when they can barely talk. We disobeyed our parents openly and secretly. We engaged in derogatory conversations about those in authority whether they were teachers or employers or civil authorities or religious authorities, it didn't matter. Anyone in authority over us, we would rip them apart with our tongue. We would speak in open defiance of their authority and authority which comes to them from God. Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. This is what characterized the old life. This is what it meant to run after sin. This is what it meant to present your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness. Verse 19. The principle here is very, very, very simple. Do you want to understand how to chase after righteousness? Chase after it the same way you used to chase after sin. However you used to chase after sin, now chase after righteousness. Prior to Christ, how did we chase after sin? Regularly, willingly, 
vigorously, reflexively, relentlessly, wholeheartedly and unashamedly with all of our being. We chased after sin and we are now to chase after Christ in the same way. Before your conversion, wicked thoughts would just come to your mind like that. And they would come right back out your mouth. Now, after Christ, it is the righteous thoughts that are come to your mind and come out your mouth. There's no other way to grow in holiness. None. The Bible knows no other way to grow in holiness but this. Look again, verse 19. So now, imperative, present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Beloved, there is no secret formula for holiness. None. There are no special prayers that someone can teach you that if you will then pray, you will get a holy hop and you will move up the plane of sanctification and live at a new level of holiness. None. The only way, the only means to grow in holiness is what Paul has laid out here. And that is that you are to understand what God in Christ has done for you. Embrace it by faith and then begin to reorder and discipline your lives to live in accordance with that new truth. That's how it's done. That is the only way it will be done. 1988 was a significant year. That was the year that the Gospel According to Jesus was published. It was also the year in which one of the five most successful advertising campaigns of the 20th century was launched. Nike Shoes launched their campaign in 1988 with their little slogan. You know what it is, right? Just do it. Just do it. If I had to put a small slogan over this section of Romans, it would be just that. Just do it. Just do it, Paul says. This is so serious a matter. I want you to listen to a quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Bible expositor of past generation, British. In his commentary on Romans 6, he's very, very explicit on this point. He says, quote, you have already received all things that pertain unto a life of godliness. You do not need another experience. You do not need some new gift. You have been given everything in Christ. You are in him from the beginning of your Christian life. This is where it gets hard. You are just a slacker and a cad. Just lazy and indolent. Indeed, a liar if you are not living this life. Wow. Wow. I can read his quote and I don't get stoned, right? That's tough stuff. He's saying if we are not living according to who we really are now, we are a liar. We are a liar. It's hard. It's hard. But, beloved, that's the message of the New Testament. That is the message of the New Testament when it comes to living a life pleasing to God. The New Testament says we are 
to realize our position in Christ and then act accordingly. That's the formula. The Bible never tells us to be what we will become, but to be what we already are. Paul addresses his epistles to the various churches and he calls them saints. Even the believers in Corinth, the most messed up church in the New Testament. He calls them saints, holy ones, those set apart. Beyond that, the command to live in accordance with who we really are is an eminently reasonable requirement. Eminently reasonable. In fact, anything contrary to this teaching is entirely unreasonable because it would not comport with reality. The reality is you have been transferred, therefore live like it. When we fail to live a holy life, and we all do, when we fail to live a holy life, when we fall into sin, when we defy God and break His law, the failure is due to one of two things. It is either a failure to understand this fundamental truth that we're to be living in a new way, or most likely it is due to our own laziness and sin and failing to apply the truth that we already know. Now that's the hard, cold reality of it. Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And that leads to the fifth statement. The fifth behavior changing statement that we must understand and apply. So that our lives will reflect the reality that we are under new ownership. Here it is for you. New ownership produces different results. New ownership produces different results. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcomes of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death and the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says that under the old way of living, there was a certain temporal and eternal benefit, if you can say it that way. And under the new way of living, there is a temporal and eternal benefit as well. And because you are under new ownership, there are going to be new results in your life. Let me illustrate it with a couple of scripture passages for you. Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 23. You can see both the temporal and eternal results of these two different ways of life. Verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
Beginning in verse 9. Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. By the way, if he says do not be deceived, that means that there is great opportunity here to be deceived. So pay attention, Paul says, and do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Two different paths, two different results. Paul says back in verse 20, when you were a slave of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. When slave was your master, you were free from the control of righteousness. It had no impact on your life. It didn't affect you in any way. I mean, reflect with me on that former time. Remember what kind of benefit was produced by that former way of living. Karpos, by the way, that means could be translated fruit. What kind of fruit came from the old way of living? The way of living which was a slavery unto sin and its eventual outcome, death. What was your life like? What was your life like when you were a slave to sin? What was it like to be dominated by your own passions? For the sake of illustration, let me describe my life. 30 years ago, I was arrogant, loud, aggressive, violent, unmerciful, uncaring, afraid to show weakness, consumed with my public image. I had a driving desire to be liked, well thought of. Praised, admired, and feared. I was a blasphemer. I was a thief. And I was a liar. I was consumed with lust. My mind was a cesspool of pornographic images. I'm not proud of this. But this is who I was. This is how I lived. I was driven by these things. Paul says that these things were shameful. Verse 21, do you see that? The things of which you are now ashamed. I am ashamed of how I once lived. I take no delight at all in who I was before Jesus Christ. In fact, I'm going to go so far as to say that being ashamed of your former life is, in my estimation, an essential part of the process of sanctification. If you look back on your life before Christ and you're not ashamed of it, then I think you are being hindered in your understanding of what it means to grow in the likeness of Jesus Christ. There's no glory back there, folks. None. Those things are wicked. Those are the very acts and attitudes that necessitated the death of the very Son of God. 
I put them on that cross. And you put them there too. They're nothing but shame. It produced rotten fruit. Verse 21, the outcome is death. Contrast, verse 22, but now, but now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, you produce new fruit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Do you see it? What a contrast. I mean, it is darkness and light, night and day, death and life. When we become enslaved to God, we begin to produce holy fruit, resulting in our sanctification, our growth in the likeness of Jesus Christ and its final outcome in eternal life in full and unhindered relationship with God, our Creator. Paul then summarizes this whole section for us in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Literally, by the way, the wages which sin pays is death. It's not the wages paid for sin. It's the wages that sin pays. Paul is continuing here to personify sin. Here he represents it, by the way, as a general. Remember I told you there's kind of a military feel through this section. He represents wage or sin here as a general who pays wages to his soldiers. Actually, the word translated wages here is a military term for a wage paid to a soldier. So it's very clear the imagery that he's using. When a soldier retires, they get a pension. They receive payment for their service. And their final check, Paul says, is eternal death. That's the final installment. The wages that sin pays. Conversely, God doesn't pay wages. God pays no wages. Because no man can put him in his debt. God pays no wages. But in the abundance of His grace, He grants the gift of eternal life. What a contrast. This verse, by the way, explains one of the fundamental laws of the universe. You know, the natural world has its physical laws that, that govern it and explain it. Isn't that right? We have the law of gravity, which regulates how objects react to each other. That's kind of a fundamental law of the physical world. Well, the moral universe has laws as well that govern it, and this is one of them. God has so established His universe that sin always ends in death. Grace ends in life. There can be no other way. If you're a child of God, if you are a child of God this morning, then God has accomplished something amazing in your life. Something amazing. He has transformed you. In union with Jesus Christ, you have been crucified, buried, and resurrected to a newness of life. That is a reality. The bondage to your sin has been broken, and you have now been enslaved to God. You have been radically transformed. 
So if that change of ownership has really happened, Paul says it's inconceivable that you would go back to the old master and serve him. It's intolerable. It's an incomplete contradiction in the terms of who you really are. So how do I apply it day to day? Help me out. Little day to day. Are you ready? This is how you apply this whole chapter. Day to day. Number one, you speak truth to yourself. You speak truth to yourself. You preach the gospel to yourself. You remind yourself of the reality of who you are in Jesus Christ. If you want help, by the way, in getting going on that, Milton Vincent has written a great book, The Gospel Primer. You can buy it in our bookstore and just buy it and read it. It's not that thick. Preach the gospel to yourself. Argue yourself back to reality constantly by telling yourself who you really are in Jesus Christ. Wake up every day and remind yourself that you are a new creation in Jesus Christ. Before the temptation arises, saturate yourself in the gospel. Reflect on it. Remember what he has done for you. Praise Him for it. Thank Him for it. And remember what it means to you in terms of your passions and your desires. That you are no longer a slave of sin, but a slave of God. Then when temptation arises, you start to have a serious argument with yourself. This is when the serious argument comes. This is when you begin to say to yourself, don't you know the meaning of your own baptism? David, don't you know what your baptism means? Remember it. Don't you know you have been united with Christ in his death, burial and resurrection? Don't you remember that? Don't you know you've been enslaved to God? That you're not a slave of sin anymore. And you have that argument as long and as loud and as violently with yourself as you need to have until that temptation passes away. And when you slip and fall, and you will, when you slip and fall, and you will, then you immediately call out to God for His deliverance. Immediately call out to God. You confess your sin to Him and to others as needed. You replace the thought or the behavior that was crooked, wicked, rotten, and filthy with that which is virtuous and good and holy and just. And you repeat the process every single day of your life until soon the old ditches get flattened out and new tire tracks get cut. Those that lead to the glory of God rather than to the destruction of man. Let me pray. Our Father, the message here is in one sense very simple. A very simple truth that we are to live in accordance with who we really are in Jesus Christ. I pray that You would Cause that to reside deeply within our hearts, Lord. We are a hard-hearted people. 
We are constantly forgetting who we are in Christ and living like we still belong to the world. Please forgive us. Please cleanse our hearts. Please strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to walk in righteousness. And Lord, as we struggle against sin, grant us the strength and the energy to continue the fight. And we pray, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus, and rescue us, we pray, for your name's sake. Amen.